Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And we're really glad you are here for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, and all of it is brought to you by Figs. Fantastic gear for medical professionals. If you are one, or if you just really like your medical professional, uh, this is a great time of year to get them a special gift. Uh, head to wearfigs.com and enter our code Martini at checkout. Much more on that in just a little bit. Uh, Jim, it is November 14th, and next year is the election year. Not, not two years from now, but we've just in the past few days gotten two more people into this presidential race. Mike Bloomberg, who somehow is filing for ballot deadlines but not officially in. I'm not really sure how this works exactly. And now former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, who a lot of people had speculated about um, much earlier in the year, and he decided not to run back then. You uh, thought very highly. In fact, it may have even been late last year uh, where Deval Patrick decided not to join the huge fray on the Democratic side. But uh, now he's getting in. He uh, released his campaign video this morning he's officially resigned from bain capital so he's not evil anymore and uh and here's a bit of his video the video is about two and a half minutes talks about how he grew up in chicago uh very poor and uh, thanks to people who helped him along the way he was able to achieve but he also explained why he's getting in now and jim you're our official political translator here so tell me what he means by this i admire and respect the candidates in the democratic field they bring up richness of ideas and experience and a depth of character that makes me proud to be a Democrat. But if the character of the candidates is an issue in every election, this time is about the character of the country. This time is about whether the day after the election America will keep her promises. This time is about more than removing an unpopular and divisive leader as important as that is, but about delivering instead for you. So, Jim, is he saying these other people can't win? They can't get what they want to get done? They're just lame? What's he trying to say there? I'm going to address all of that in a second, Greg. (laughs) But I'm going to make the observation. It would really be better for Deval Patrick if he didn't sound like Steve Urkel. (laughs) I know my voice is not the world's best. I, you know, it sounds nasal and Kermit the Frog-ish whenever I play back our our podcasts. Yeah, we're, we're born with what we have. But I just want to say... If Deval Patrick was being dubbed by James Earl Jones, <laughs> he would already be up by 20 points. This election is about our future. Don't make me destroy you. You know, okay, just all that Darth Vader stuff would be great. Yeah, look, there's there's a very vibe of, I don't think these guys can win, even though he never says it. And that whole thing about delivering, look, I think it's, you know, they're, this centrist argument for the Democrats, which, no, you know, progressives don't want to hear the Twitter left, you know, go, throws a tantrum when you say this to them, but look. Most of these ideas they're throwing out can't be passed, would, would never survive a filibuster. You'd have to nuke the filibuster. And already so far, thanks to the reporting of our my colleague, John McCormick, Kirsten Cinema says she's not going to get rid of the filibuster. Joe Manson says he's not going to get rid of the filibuster. And uh, uh, John Tester has said no. And there are another like half dozen that are like, nah, I really don't want to. And another half dozen that are like, well, maybe we totally need to, but I got doubts about it, you know. Klobuchar had said that she actually wondered if we should restore the filibuster for judicial nomination and stuff like that. So, look, Green New Deal and adding more Supreme Court justices and, and all this kind of stuff. Look, you're not going to have the votes to do that. And and if Deval Patrick, it'd be interesting to see if Deval Patrick 
um, kind of makes his his claim as folks. We got to live in reality, right? We got we got to live with. Uh, I know we want to, you know, believe in unicorns and rainbows, and we can have whatever we want. And the president has a magic wand that can do anything, but none of this stuff is going to happen. Stop lying to people. Stop raising their hopes. That would be, I think, a compelling message. But then I like reality. Um, I know that a lot of people who are interested in politics very much prefer the fantasy. Um, and I guess, you know, again, if you're going to fantasize about, you know, things in politics being different, maybe Deval Patrick can fantasize about having a different voice. It's funny that you say that because uh, I figured I had heard his voice before and then I was playing the video to figure out what clip to use for the podcast today. And he gets about three words out of his mouth, and I'm like, "No, you're done. That's that's just that's just that's just not going <laughs> to work." And, and when I, you said you know, I spoke well of him in the past, I, I'd say he, he was somebody who made a lot of sense. Right? He's a two-term governor. He's one of the few guys who could say, "Yeah, I've dealt with the crisis. I was governor when the Boston Marathon bombings were going on." Uh, and you know, maybe you love the decision to shut down the entire city on that Friday. Maybe you don't love that decision, but he can say, "Hey, I've been there when uh, life and death situations." Um, you know, we're, I'm making air quotes as I say centrist, but, you know, at least he understands the need for all this. But let me do one other thing, and I just put this up on the corner uh, that our listeners should not miss. So, again, what's he been doing for the last couple of years? He's been working at Bain. And as you alluded in the introduction there, Greg, oh, suddenly it's not evil anymore. Um, <laughs> suddenly it's fine. We're not, we're not going to see any more, you know, jokes regarding Bane from Batman and all that kind of stuff. And a couple things worth knowing. First of all, so he's because he's governor, uh, the governor of Massachusetts. There weren't the same financial disclosure requirements. Nonetheless, the Boston Globe was able to gather a bunch of information. He was probably making around three north of three million a year as a lawyer for Coca Cola uh, before running for governor. ACC Capital Holdings. He was making three hundred sixty grand a year. Uh, Reebok was paying him a little short of three hundred thousand. Ford Foundation, Texco Group, et cetera, et cetera. He holds stock in more than 250 companies, and he had at one point probably four residents, four, four residences. So Bernie Sanders can still make fun of him uh, for being rich. Because <laughs> he's got at least now, one more house than Bernie, right? Right, yeah. So keep in mind, this is 2006. Uh, Deval Patrick refused to disclose his tax returns. Now, as we know, Greg, that is the most evil thing anybody can do. Um, <laughs> That, that makes you history's greatest monster. But luckily for Deval Patrick, that in, that that standard didn't kick in until late 2015. Uh, by the way, I think every president sh- a presidential candidate should disclose their tax returns. Uh, I did not like Trump's statement, but I do think it's kind of interesting that he'll probably get a pass on this. Um, also, in his open introduction uh, interview today, uh, Deval Patrick said that wealth is not the problem. Greed is the problem. Wealth not being the problem is a really good thing to hear if you work for Bain Capital for the last couple of years. Axios, who generally does a pretty good job, but every once in a while I feel the need to throw a tomato. They had, yesterday they had a point where Patrick's Bain Capital experience is much different from Mitt Romney's in, type, in both type <laughs> and tenure. He did the good kind of investing, Greg, that it was about socially relevant causes and environmental stuff. And it wasn't, it wasn't all about making money. It was basically about improving them. Whereas Mitt Romney, that was the bad kind of investing. That was dark and scary and it gave steelworkers cancer and, and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to scream bad words at people. Because <laughs> like we we can see this, right? We can see, no, no, this is totally different Bain Capital. This is the really good kind. Back then it was evil. That was, that was ancient history back in 2012. Well, the media now has strange new respect for Mitt Romney since he's tough on the president. So will there be a, a Bain Capital revisionism for him now that it doesn't matter for Mitt Romney eight years after the fact? You know, 
you probably, but like, could, could we, you know, I want to go back in time. I want to show this to all these correspondents then. What about your gaffes? <laughs> Binders full of women. Yeah. How did you end up with Trump? Stuff like this is how you ended up with Trump. Here's the thing, though, with Deval Patrick. I don't want Deval Patrick to be president, uh, but I do want him to do fairly well, at least, in the primary. Because, Jim, if one of these guys who gets in in November actually becomes a competitive candidate, think about how much later the next cycle might start. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that uh, Delaney would have been the, uh, uh, the, the open because he was running in 2017. Yes. I'm not making this up. He filed the papers. And this is John Delaney? Yes, right? yes. Mike, he's been off the debate stage for like a month, and I've totally forgotten who he Dana Delaney, something like that. So. This guy ran for three years, and three years of practically living in Iowa, still nobody knows who he is. And, you know, we, we make fun of him. He did make a good point or two on that debate stage, and then he promptly disappeared. Well, I've heard John Delaney, who's uh, independently wealthy, which I'm sure most Democrats don't really like very much, but uh, he's now going to buy infomercials a la Ross Perot in Iowa to try and make a dent. So, Jim, I'm sure that'll make all the difference for him. Now, here's the deal. See, you know, I, these guys with their huge wealth, why can't they be ordinary middle class, $900,000 a year, you know, Harvard law professors like Elizabeth Warren? Middle class. Speaking of Elizabeth Warren, she wants to completely overhaul the medical system, the whole healthcare system in this country, and uh, basically take away private insurance. And that means doctors would make a lot less. And I'm sure most doctors don't like that. They're not going to be as comfortable, but they can be comfortable physically if they have better stuff to wear. And that's where Figs comes in, because all of us go to the doctor, hopefully not very often. Others of us go regularly to the dentist, checkups, whatever, take the kids in. Uh, People who work in medicine do amazing things every day. They take great care of us, uh, whether it's us or a family member. So they should wear scrubs that make them feel good and perform at their very best. Figs creates the highest quality medical apparel so that medical professionals look their best, feel their best, and perform at their best every single day. Figs scrubs are infused with antimicrobial properties to control odors. Like, you know, you're, you're in there, you're getting a checkup, you're it's a little bit of BO from your doctor, you're going to be a little bit nervous about that. They are ridiculously soft. They are moisture wicking and feature a four-way stretch. Not, not three-way stretch, but four-way stretch. They're made with yoga waistbands. They come with a variety of styles from classic straight legs to joggers and skinny styles. Figs make great gifts for the lifesavers in your life. Figs gift cards are available. Maybe you don't know exactly what your doc, favorite doctor, favorite nurse uh, or practitioner would, uh, you know, wants, you know, fig, get them a Figs gift card. So next time your doctor, nurse, dentist, dermatologist, or pediatrician saves the day, a great way to say thank you is by sending them figs. As I mentioned earlier in the week, I've had the opportunity to use some fig stuff. I've got their very comfortable socks, as well as the active wear jacket. I misrepresented the temperatures where I wear the jacket uh, the other day. Some of my uh, Michigan friends uh, decided that that made me a weakling. Uh, since moving out here, I don't actually wear it when it's in the 70s. I wear it when it's in the 40s and 50s and maybe the low 60s. But uh, it's very comfortable. It's got lots of pockets, so it's not only good for me, it's good for for you if you're a medical professional and you got lots of little devices you need uh, to help uh, do checkups, whether it's uh, the things that look in the eyes, ears, and throat, or it's the stethoscope or thermometer, whatever it is, it's all very handy. And it's a very comfortable jacket that keeps you warm and keeps you comfortable at a wide variety of temperatures. And there's so many other things you can find at the site. So whether you're one of those people that does such a great service for us every single day in the medical profession, 
or you just want to give your favorite doctor, nurse, or dentist, or whatever, a gift this coming holiday season, Figs is the way to do it. And right now, uh, Figs is going to make that easy by providing you with 15% off your first purchase by using our code MARTINI. So get ready to love your scrubs. Head to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter our code MARTINI at checkout. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And the bad news is is that we're going to have to sit through uh, an impeachment process here for quite a bit longer. We're going to have these committee hearings led by Adam Schiff. Then we're going to have probably articles of impeachment. Then we're going to have the floor debate. Then we're going to have a six- to eight-week trial in the Senate. And uh, if the first day of testimony in the Schiff committee is any indication... There's uh, not a lot of minds that are going to change, and it's going to be pretty tedious. Here's a few clips that uh, caught my attention yesterday. This first one got a lot of uh, play, certainly on the right, and that's Jim Jordan questioning Ambassador Taylor. Ambassador, you weren't on the call, were you? The president, you didn't listen on President Trump's call and President Lindsey's call? I did not. You've never talked with Chief of Staff Mulvaney? I never did. You never met the president? That's correct. You had three meetings again with Zelensky, and it didn't come up. And two of those they had never heard about, as far as I know. And even over at CNN, Jeffrey Tubin noticed that throughout these hours of testimony, hey, these guys were never actually in the same room or on the same line as the president. Because the one criticism of these two witnesses, which I think is very much legitimate, it's not really a criticism, it's just a factual statement, is that neither of them had direct contact with the president. Ever. Ever. And, yeah. and you know, that's a problem if you're going to impeach the president. Yeah, kind of is a problem, but... Uh, <laughs> Leave it to the Democrats on the House side. That is not a problem for Illinois Congressman Mike Quigley. Hearsay? Hey, that's a good thing. Because the courts have routinely allowed and created needed exceptions to hearsay. Hearsay can be much better evidence than direct, as we have learned in painful instances. And it's certainly valid in, in, in this instance. There you go, Jim. It's better than people who actually saw or heard what happened. So uh, what do you make of uh, day one here? So, Greg, does it feel like everybody in politics is incapable of conceding even the smallest point, e even the smallest, you know, iota of an argument, uh, admission against interest or anything like that? Trump is insisting his call with President Zelensky of Ukraine was perfect. <laughs> right. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's the immaculate call. It was conceived without sin. <laughs> There's nothing in it that anybody could possibly object to. But here we have the argument. Yeah, these are two guys who say, well, this is what I heard the president was saying. This is what I heard the president was wanted. It's secondhand. Now, does it mean that it's accurate? Does it mean it's false? It could be accurate. But again, as you know, at least you two been as the acknowledge the, the decency to acknowledge, if impeachment is all about what the president did, what did the president do, say, order, what happened in his direction, you know, that that matters a great deal if you're going to impeach the president. It's not enough for the Democrats to say, look. Hearsay is admissible in courts of law. Hearsay could be accurate as long as you, uh, the, the jury or the judge, keeps in mind that it is hearsay. No, no, he's got to go even further and say it's even better than direct evidence. <laughs> we don't want to waste our time with any of that direct evidence. We want to give you the really good stuff, the hearsay. Let me tell you, that's, you know, because as information gets passed from person to person, Greg, I don't know if you know this, a little known fact, it gets more accurate. That's why kids play the telephone games. It's, the message never changes. In fact, it gets even closer <laughs> to the truth the more times it gets repeated by a person. Um, I, I wrote them today's morning, Jolt. I, I, we, we may talk about impeachment a great deal on this podcast in the coming weeks, Greg. We may not. Because, like, we know how this ends. Right? It's, barring, you know, Trump shooting people on Fifth Avenue, 
most Republicans are going to vote no on this, and most Democrats are going to vote yes on this. And as for the Republicans, it really depends on who on Fifth Avenue he shoots. <laughs> How bad are the wounds? Uh, maybe they vote. Maybe they vote for impeachment if his marksmanship was really bad. Maybe they. Uh, the I, I'm joking, people. This is not an endorsement of president you know, reverse presidential assassinations, in which the president assassinates other people. We know how this ends. And so this is this this thing is passing like a kidney stone. I mean, this is just slow. It's going to go every single day. We get live coverage around it. We all kind of know the basic facts of this. We might get a revelation here and there about, as you said, this exact chain of information and who knew what when. But by and large, look, you know, the president. The issue is not what did the president say or was the president trying to pressure the Ukrainian government to investigate the Biden. That, that's all right there. We all know it. The big question is, do you think this is impeachable? Now, a lot of people see this as an abuse of power. A lot of people see this as blurring the line between the president's personal interests, political interests, and the national interest. And I'm among those who think, yeah, shouldn't have done, shouldn't have done this. This is bad. This is, this is, you know, not something we want the president to do. And we need some sort of deterrent against him doing it again or for future presidents getting the same ideas. That having been said, we've never removed a president from office before. And back in 1998, the country said, hey, you know what? Suborning perjury, not bad enough to remove a president. Well, if supporting perjury is not bad enough, I'm not sure this is particularly bad enough. So he's probably going to end up like Bill Clinton. He's probably going to end up like Andrew Johnson. This is all going to end with, you know, impeached by the House, acquitted by the Senate. And then we move on to the real action, which is the 2020 presidential election. But apparently we've just got to go through this whole thing over and over again. And, you know, Greg, as I moan and groan about how long this is going and how predictable it is and all that stuff, Am I starting to sound like a Democrat presidential candidate who wants to get back to Iowa and New Hampshire? <laughs> well, Jim, it's going to be a long year for you in 2020 as well, because this is totally off subject. But uh, yesterday, your Jets announced that not only is your coach sticking around for the rest of this year, but all of next year, too. So, um, yeah, things just get better and better. But Greg, have you, ever, like, have you ever heard a team doing that? Like the team's two and seven. Right. They just hired the guy. Uh, he came on. He wasn't. This is not. Spent, didn't spend a long time in the wilderness. He was just coach of Miami, and Miami didn't think he was worth keeping. Mediocre record at best. He's two and seven, and they come. Actually, he uh, Christopher Johnson announced this the week before, before they beat the Giants. So at one and seven, he tells Gase and he tells the players, "Not only am I keeping, am I, I'm not firing this guy midseason." You can make the argument that midseason firings rarely worked out, except Greg Williams might argue otherwise. No, no. Also, I'm securing him for 2020. There is no amount of losses. There is no Andrew Gase can go out and shoot people on Fifth Avenue, and Chris Johnson will not fire him as head coach of the New York Jets. That's where things are. I just felt like like on an instant pot. You just needed to release that that stress right there. So I figured that was the best opportunity to do it. You feel so. a twitch in my eye. <laughs> All right, back to our actual job here. Let's move to our crazy martini and back to the Democratic presidential race. And we talked about Deval Patrick and his late entry. And uh, less than a week ago, it was Michael Bloomberg. But Michael Bloomberg's strategy is uh, starting to sound a lot like a, another former New York City mayor who didn't do very well. Uh, CBS News, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg still deciding whether to run for president, but will not appear on the primary ballot in New Hampshire. Bloomberg does not plan to file to be on the ballot for the Democratic contest as the first in the nation primary in the Granite State. Uh, the New Hampshire filing deadline is tomorrow, by the way. There's no word on whether the former mayor plans to file to appear on the ballot in other early contest states. Iowa doesn't have a ballot filing deadline because of the caucus system. But basically what we're hearing from the Bloomberg campaign is that Mike Bloomberg is seeking a quote-unquote different route to the nomination by focusing instead on the roughly 1,300 delegates up for grabs on Super Tuesday. So, 
Jim, Super Tuesday is not till March, which means he's basically sitting out everything, it seems, in uh, in February, which is four different states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Also, 1,300 delegates, even if he were to win all of them, which he clearly won't, is not enough to win the Democratic nomination. So I don't know why he thinks the South is his ticket to success here, but uh, this is quite the strategy from Mike Bloomberg. Hi there. I'm Michael Bloomberg. I'm 5'7 on my tippy toes. I want to take away your guns. I'm from New York City. Yes, that paste salsa ad. New York City! And also, I want to take away your large soda. Vote for me, Alabama! Yeah, I don't think that's going to be a great sell. And uh, the, the oddity here, let's say, you know, you're, you're Michael Bloomberg. And yeah, okay, I, I, amongst many others, have said, why do these states get to go first? Iowa is ridiculous. It's, you know, it's, it's obviously overwhelmingly white. It's rural. This is why we can't get rid of ethanol subsidies. Uh, New Hampshire, all they want to do is tax cuts, and they're worried about syrup prices. Uh, Nevada, come on, it's Las Vegas. It's, you know, entirely unions that run the casinos out there. And then there's South Carolina, where my parents live. It's a perfectly good state. And you should always go there. Out of those four, if you're Bloomberg, if there's any state that looks like it might be a good shot for you, it's New Hampshire, right? It's, it's the closest in the Northeast. Um, you don't have to feign an interest in, in agricultural issues or anything like that. That's probably geographically, culturally, probably your best match out of that because it's up, you know, geographically closest. You're just going to skip all four because what happens is the winners of these early states get momentum. The losers drop out. They start making their endorsements. If Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa and New Hampshire, she'll look really good, like like a really good shot of winning the nomination. If Biden manages to pick off one of those, he'll be fine. Everybody thinks he's going to win South Carolina by a wide margin. Still got the biggest uh, level of support amongst African-Americans out there. Some of these, like there are certain political realities here. I would like a world in which we didn't have to rely on these states so much, other than South Carolina, which is a wonderful state because I visited a couple times a year. My parents live there. But other than that, what is the strategy here? I don't know if it's just because when you're a billionaire, any idea that pops into your head just starts to sound good. First of all, you got your geographic issue, which obviously he's the closest to, to New Hampshire. But you also have Warren and Sanders, who are literally next door from Vermont and, and Massachusetts. Also, I'm not sure how much New Hampshire hangs by the, the live free or die motto anymore. I know to some extent they do. And you mentioned taxes, certainly. So when Mike Bloomberg wants to regulate everything under the sun, uh, from sodas to styrofoam to smoking to whatever else it was, um, I'm not sure that's going to resonate well, but you at least have to try. If you're going to run, that's the place you got to try. Yeah, it was a New Hampshire GOP strategist who gave me this very memorable portrait of it uh, years and years ago, probably the 2008 campaign. So I'm going to try to remember it as accurately as I can, Greg. It was, it was basically the Democratic primary in New Hampshire is little old ladies who serve on their library board and who are really, really worried about the bad words in um, Catcher in the Rye. Right. These, you know, you, you know, little blue haired old ladies and, and all that kind of stuff. And he said that the guy, the people who write, vote in the New Hampshire Republican primary inevitably are wearing a red plaid shirt, which explains Lamar Alexander's campaign back in 1990. <laughs> uh, they got three days growth. Even if they shave that morning, they end up having three days growth. Uh, and they, they run a snowplow business in the winter. <laughs> and, you know, and it was you, you could just picture these people in your head. And that's like, oh, OK, so those are the kind of people that vote in each party's primary. And that's who you have to appeal to. Um, obviously, you know, Bloomberg's not going to match up with the, the Republican primary vote, but you could see little old ladies looking at Bloomberg and say, okay, he's a guy who knows what he's doing. He's, I'm, I'm worried about these young people with all their big sodas and their guns and their, their drugs and all that stuff. Maybe you could work there. Yeah. And so, but he's not trying and, you know, good luck, pal. 
you know, I, I just have this funny feeling, Greg, that with this kind of a strategy, he's going to um, come up short. <laughs> I knew something like that was coming. I'm really personal today. You know, Deval Patrick's voice, <laughs> Michael Bloomberg's height. It's the Adam Gates news. I'm sorry, people. <laughs> Jim, I, I think based on that uh, description of... Uh... Of the voters, we understand now why consultants don't actually interact with the voters. They just kind of sum them up and let the candidates interact with them. Because I'm guessing there's a few folks who just heard that from up in New England and said, "Hey, that doesn't exactly describe us." But uh, uh, I should point out, Greg, that this consultant lived up in New Hampshire and very often had three days growth. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> so he knows of what he speaks. Okay, very good. Jim, on that note, tomorrow actually is Friday, so we'll talk to you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you very much for being with us today. Glad you could be along for the three martini lunch. And don't forget to head to wherefigs.com. Check out Code Martini. Also, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a nice review. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And tune in again Friday for the next three martini lunch.